We're going to turn now to the preaching of God's word. You can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. We are wrapping up our series in 1 Corinthians today, which is an incredible thought. So I'm going to read this. This is the holy word of God, authoritative and sufficient for all things. Chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and, Pris and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. So here we are on New Year's Day. It's a day full of goals and optimism and planning and promise. I've been thinking a lot about goals this week. Some years I've had too many goals. Other years I've had too few or none at all. Some years, plenty of times, my goals have been way too ambitious. Other years, they've been severely lacking in ambition. Maybe you find yourself in this new year with goals in place and a plan of attack ready to go. Or maybe you find yourself here this morning and are just now realizing it really is January 1st. 
I find goals are helpful. They give us something to work towards and be focused on. And while finishing a sermon series on New Year's might not seem like the most goal-oriented thing, I've come to realize that this one really is. The goal set before us in the book of 1 Corinthians has been unity. Being united with Christ and to one another through the power of the cross, which, as we've seen, makes us a called church in this world. With that as the main goal, Paul has given us many smaller goals along the way to achieve this larger goal of unity with one another in the gospel as the church of Christ. If we take just a brief look back at our series through 1 Corinthians together, we can get some of the snapshots of what it looks like for us to be working towards unity in the gospel as a called church and some of the things that we're fighting against. We saw that we are a called church in a divided world. Paul's helped us to see that our world is full of division and fighting and pride and selfishness. He gave us goals of grace and unity made possible through the power of the cross, reminding us that our example of unity as believers stands out to those around us as a witness of the true power of the cross. We saw that we are a called church in an impure world. Paul's reminded us that our world is one full of temptations and indulgences and filth that are all pulling at us constantly. Things like sexual immorality and drinking and endless conflicts. We saw that for those who believe in Jesus, though, we have been washed clean through the power of the gospel. And that our fight for purity together in Christ stands out drastically to those around us who are enslaved to impurities. We saw that we are a called church in a selfish world. Paul reminded us that in our world, our preferences, rights, and entitlements run rampant. Pride and selfishness, independence, self-reliance, and self-preservation are king. And in stark contrast, the power of the cross changes us. And the gospel models and calls us to a selfless life full of humility and service Paul calls it running the race of faith with endurance for God's glory, not ours. And he reminds us that this way of living also builds up those around us. We saw that we are a called church in a carnal world. Paul highlighted that the norm in our world is to be led and governed by our flesh and its desires. It's all about feeling good and doing what we think is best but not for us as the church. The focus here was on being led by and submitting to the Holy Spirit and how that goal is realized in and through the church. We receive specific instruction on communion and spiritual gifts with the center of all of it being love and the result being the building up of the church. And we've seen that we are a called church in a dying world. It's no surprise to us that our world and everything in it is dying. Death and disease are part of the curse of sin and it permeates throughout all creation. However, 
The power of the gospel is so supreme and perfectly effective that it has the power to save and resurrect and give eternal hope in and through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. He is alive and forever will be. And he will raise us from the dead so that we will be with him forever. This absolutely shatters the understanding and experience and expectations of our dying world. What an incredible book 1 Corinthians has been. I'd encourage you to take some time today or this week and think back through the series. Read back through your notes or scroll through the sermons online to jog your memory. What impacted you the most? What encouraged you or challenged you the most? What convicted you the most? What challenged you the most to live out and be a witness of the power of the gospel? Have a conversation with your friends or family over lunch and dinner. Celebrate and rejoice in what God has done through this series and how he's worked in your heart, mind, and soul. Looking back at God's faithfulness and what we've achieved by his help is actually a really powerful tool for us as we work towards goals that we've set or have been set for us. Recounting God's faithfulness is the most effective way for our faith to be built, for our trust to be built in him and his plan and purposes. Sometimes we need check-ins and reminders concerning our goals along the way. They serve to keep us motivated and focused. And that is exactly what Paul is giving us here in chapter 16. He's not just tying up loose ends. He's giving us really important last goals and tying everything back into the main themes of being united with Christ and with one another in love. As we reflect on the power of the cross and remember that we have, in fact, been united together as a called church in this world, Paul gives us one last snapshot to strive together towards, which you can see in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. It's consistent with everything that Paul has said and reminded us us of in this letter. The love of Christ has saved us and changed us, and it has united us with Jesus and together with everyone who believes in him as Savior and King. And if Jesus' love has saved us and changed us, then that type of love must mark our lives as we live out this life with one another and live out our lives in and among the world. So here's our main idea for today. Because we're united in Christ, everything we do must be done in love. Because we're united in Christ, everything we do must be done in love. What does this actually look like for us? We're going to walk through three points this morning to help us. First, let us love through partnership. Find that in verses 1 to 12. Second, let us love through faithfulness. We find this in verses 13 and 14. Third, let us love through service. 
We find this in verses 15 to 18. So first up, let us love through partnership. Again, this is verses 1 to 12. In these verses, like we've seen several times in the letter already, Paul is responding to something that the Corinthians have asked about. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. In these instructions that he gives about collecting funds for the church in Jerusalem and in his explaining of what his travel plans are, there are several things for us to see and understand. A quick study of the offering that Paul is instructing the church in Corinth and the churches in Galatia to contribute towards reveals that the church in Jerusalem that he's collecting funds for was experiencing significant, sustained hardship. And churches all over the area took the initiative to gather up funds and send to Jerusalem to help them. This is what Paul is inviting them to contribute towards. This is really significant because it's an incredible example for us of one significant way of how extra-local partnership of churches can practically function. This collection and sharing of funds expresses care and solidarity. It's a tangible, real-world expression of generosity and gospel partnership and unity in and through the love of Christ. The power of the gospel has saved and changed people, and as they're united together as local churches, they're also united as the broader church of God. This gospel union and gospel transformation shows up as genuine care for each other and commitment to each other's welfare. It's amazing to note that right away in the history of the church, there was commitment and partnership being felt and experienced by local churches. This makes me incredibly grateful for the church for two reasons. One is that as the church, we experience generosity and care from other local churches. We ourselves at Redeemer have experienced this over and over within Sovereign Grace churches. In the form of grants to plant our church and the countless resources invested and shared with us through conferences and guest preachers and teachers and the gifts of books and music and even in the form of the loan we received to help us purchase land just around the corner. We're not experiencing the type of hardship that the church in Jerusalem was facing, but we are experiencing the gospel unity and generosity of other local churches who care about us and are committed to our well-being. It is a beautiful thing. It also makes me really grateful for the church because we at Redeemer Fellowship and in Sovereign Grace are committed to planting and supporting churches even in areas that will likely need financial support for the long haul. You all know that Philly is very dear to my heart. And passages like this make me think of our churches in very poor, needy, suffering neighborhoods there. Those churches could not exist and function without the ongoing financial support of other local churches. I love that we get to be a part of that and that this passage models for us what that can look like. I'm so grateful for these expressions of gospel transformation and unity because they demonstrate the unstoppable power of the gospel. 
People all over the world need to hear and see the gospel of Jesus, and we can't only have churches in places that can be self-sustaining. That's not the aim of the gospel, and I'm so glad it's not the design and aim of the church that we see so early in its history. I love that we get to continue to be a part of that model and design. And I pray that Redeemer becomes more and more active in planting and supporting other local churches to reach many, many people with the gospel. Now, when we look at verses 5 to 11, we see that even as Paul is sharing his travel plans and Timothy's plans to come visit the Corinthians as well, there's also an expectation communicated that the church would host and provide for them while they stay there. And that they would also help them as they continue on in their travels and perform their ministries for the Lord. You see that specifically in verses 6 and 11. Guys, unity in the gospel looks like partnership. It looks like generosity and commitment to one another's welfare. As the gospel saves us and changes us and unites us together, let us love through partnership. One thing to note here is that this expression of generosity and gospel partnership is not in place of our generosity and commitment to our local church. We saw this in chapter 9 when Paul was talking about not muzzling the ox and how those who labor for the church are worthy of compensation derived specifically from the gifts of the church. But even here in chapter 16 in verse 2, you see that Paul's instruction for the offering is in keeping with what any individual has earned. He tells us to set something aside and store it up as we prosper. This is a great example to us. As we commit to giving our tithes and offerings, we give first and foremost to our local church to support the various works of ministry but our additional offerings we can contribute and set aside to love other local churches and organizations through gospel partnership. It makes me grateful that we work to function this way, even with our church funds. We give 10% of our funds to Sovereign Grace to support the ongoing work of ministry and church planting, but we also give additional funds to churches like Grace City in Frankfurt and Mercy Gate in Wissanoming, both in Philly. We give to organizations like Door of Hope and Orphan Care Coalition and Covenant Mercies. All of these are expressions of gospel unity and generosity as we seek to love through partnership. And if he should continue to do so, we can't wait to see how the Lord blesses and grows our impact and reach in this way to tangibly express his care and provision for his people. Friends, because we're united in Christ, everything we must do, everything we do must be done in love. Let us be committed to growing in and expressing this love through partnership. As we do that together, we also need to fight for our second point this morning. Number two, let us love through faithfulness. This is in verses 13 and 14. Let me read this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 
In these verses, Paul gives us some very concise and clear exhortations. Paul is not necessarily usually so quick to the point, but in this case, he's really just summarizing things that he has called us to throughout the whole letter. But let's consider each of them briefly. The first ones we see are be watchful and stand firm in the faith. What did the Corinthians need to be watchful of? What's Paul calling us to be watchful of? What does it mean to stand firm in the faith? Well, if we recall the many adjustments and corrections that Paul has given throughout the letter, we can safely say that the Corinthians needed to be more intentional about being watchful of the negative influence and divisiveness of cultural and worldly customs and values. They needed to be watchful of judging each other and trying to impress each other based on status and influence and possessions. They needed to be watchful of falling into sexual immorality or becoming comfortable and negligent of the dangers that rear their ugly heads in idolatry and greed and selfishness. To stand firm is to hold one's ground and not surrender or run away in the face of temptations and trials or oppositions and fears. To stand firm in the faith is not just holding strongly to biblical convictions, but particularly to faithfully persist in living in a way that is consistent with the faith that we claim in Christ. The Corinthians had shown some particular weaknesses in these areas. They were prone to give in to the lax moral standards of their environment. They were more likely to allow their thoughts and actions to be taken captive by worldly values and standards. All of these and more are reasons that the Corinthians needed to be faithful in their gospel unity, and they're all still true for us today. The power of the gospel has saved us and changed us, so we must live out the gospel in faithfulness fueled by the transforming love of Christ. Because we're united in Christ, everything we do must be done in love. We are still prone to thinking too highly of ourselves and our strengths and our own abilities to withstand sin and temptation. But the best way to love through faithfulness is prioritizing our unity to Jesus and to each other and fighting for faithfulness to God first and foremost. Paul and James and Peter, they all call us to put away sin for the sake of our own souls and for the benefit and uplifting of each other and the whole church. I think this was the most challenging and important impactful category for me throughout our series. As the years go by as a believer, we can begin to become lax in being watchful of our life and our conduct. My self-discipline was slacking in several areas. My intake of media had become excessive. The way that I enjoyed and talk, talked about some liberties in my life was beginning to be a bit careless. Throughout the year, I've talked to Amanda and a couple of the guys about these areas of my life, acknowledging my weaknesses and failures, apologizing and confessing where needed. 
Friends, the call here in 1 Corinthians is to be vigilant in being watchful of our lives. God has been very kind to me. He's been faithful to help me to see and help me by his spirit to begin to work on these areas of my life with a fresh focus. So can I ask you, what areas of your life might your heart and soul benefit from a more vigilant watchfulness? Consider the impact a fresh focus on your life and conduct might have on your own soul and on the lives of the people closest to you. Take some time to consider that today. We must heed the call to be watchful. Make this a goal for yourself this year. Recount God's faithfulness to you. Recount the gospel's transforming power in your life and ask the Spirit for help to put away sin and be watchful of your life and conduct. This call to be watchful and stand firm is not one to hear and think that it's just on you to make it happen. First of all, the call here is to each of us for all of us. We live the Christian life together. We're united in Christ. This includes keeping watch on and for each other in love. But more importantly, your Savior is keeping watch and standing firm for you. More faithfully than you ever could, more vigilantly than you ever could, and he does so without sleeping or ceasing. He is constantly holding you together and praying for you and protecting you. When you feel weak and weary of being watchful and standing firm, remember that you are united with Christ and he is being watchful and standing firm for you. Paul's next exhortations in verse 13 are to act like men and to be strong. But this isn't just an exhortation for men, and Paul is not calling all of you ladies to be manly. It's really a hearkening back to a long-standing biblical call for us as the people of God to be strong and courageous. This exhortation from Paul, this goal that he gives us is one that each of us needs to keep in our back pockets. Memorize it. Write it on your mirror. Keep it in front of you. Why? Because this call to be strong and courageous in your faith is one that you will repeatedly forever need to be reminded of. Paul knows this from personal experience, just like God's people do all through history. Paul has experienced extreme persecution and trial, severe pain and suffering, significant loss and disappointment and betrayal. And what is he exhorting us towards? Strength and courage. The Christian life is not for cowards or the faint of heart. You will experience pain and loss and trial. We see it all throughout our Bibles, and Jesus himself promised it would come to those who follow him. To be strong and courageous means to faithfully carry out your responsibilities despite your circumstances and fears. To be strong and courageous means that you don't give in to your fears or feelings of despair and hopelessness or give up when you feel like things are too hard. 
But, my dear friends, this is not just an exhortation to suck it up or put on your big boy pants. We can't just muster up our own strength and courage and determination and make it. This call, this exhortation, this goal that Paul is giving us to be strong and courageous is to be strong and courageous in our Lord and King Jesus. He has endured more pain and loss and trial and temptation and betrayal than we will ever know. And he loves us so much that he endured all of those things for us. He was perfectly strong and courageous, even to the point of death on a cross, to save you from your sins and change you forever and make you his. We remain and become strong and courageous by putting our hope and confidence in him. That's what Paul's been telling us all throughout 1 Corinthians. There is nothing more powerful than the gospel. And it is Christ's defining, definitive, declaring work on the cross that gives us all the confidence in the world that he loves us and will continue to help us and guide us and provide for us. Christian, your Savior is not calling you to face any circumstance or fears that he himself will not help you to face. The Christian life isn't for the weak, because as weak as we all are, our King is perfectly strong and courageous for us. The main idea today is because we're united in Christ, everything we do must be done in love. We love through faithfulness by depending on our Savior for his saving, transforming, empowering love that he gives us through the cross. And if he loves us that much, our lives must be filled with loving faithfulness in response. Which is why Paul ends with this last exhortation in verse 14, where we get our main idea this morning. Let all that you do be done in love. This truly is a summary of the whole book. All of the teaching and instruction and correction and adjustments, all of it has been with the aim of loving Christ and his church. As we're changed by the love of Jesus, our lives should be filled and overflowing with that love, which dramatically affects the way that we live with and love those around us. In chapter 8, Paul taught us that the knowledge puffs up, but love builds up with a strong foundation. In chapter 12, Paul called us to do everything in love. In chapter 13, he reminded us that even the most miraculous, wonderful acts are worthless in God's sight if they are lacking in love. In chapter 14, we were taught that the effect of all of this intentional, orderly love is that others are built up, just like we saw again at the beginning of this passage. And in chapter 10, we saw Paul instruct us that as we live out our faith, all this loving faithfulness, everything we do is to be done for the glory of God. Check out this quote from Roy Kiempa and Brian Rosner. God is glorified when people act in love. 
when they put the welfare of others first and worship God in a way that is consistent with his own character. Self-sacrificing love is the model given to us by Christ and the key to the health and growth of his church and to the maturing of both individuals and the communities to which they belong. Christ-like love is a principal manifestation of God's renewed humanity, the sign that God's work in us, the work which will ultimately result in the resurrection of the dead and our complete renewal, has already begun to manifest itself. This, the fifth of five crisp exhortations in a row, is the clearest of them all and the one which most clearly reinforces the themes of the letter as a whole. Redeemer Fellowship, because we're united with Christ, everything we do must be done in love. This brings us to our final point this morning. The third way that we live out this love, let us love through service. I think it can be really easy for us to just glaze over when we get to verses like 15 to 18. I know I've certainly done it many times. Send my greetings, expect so-and-so, yada, yada, yada. But I want to slow down here for a few minutes. There's important things in these verses. Paul's talking about saints that are dear to him, that have refreshed his spirit. Two things here I think are very significant. First, notice that Paul is holding these believers up as examples. They were the first converts in Achaia, so they've been Christians longer than many. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They are actively living out their faith in Christ with loving faithfulness for the sake of building up the church. He even goes so far as to say that he rejoices at their coming because they have made up for the absence that Paul has felt from the Corinthians. That's a big statement. He says that these dear Christians have refreshed his spirit as well as the Corinthians. What an example of doing everything in love. No wonder Paul's commending them here. Friends, I think the first question for us to ask ourselves is this. Do I live out my faith this way? Is your main goal to live your life for Jesus and devote yourself to doing all that you do in love? Loving through partnership and faithfulness and service. Paul holds these believers up as examples not to make us feel guilty or put us down, but to give us simple, attainable goals to live out our faith in love. We can all live like this. And what an incredible impact it would have on our church and our families and our communities if we did. Everything we do must be done in love, and they are living that out. This is an encouragement. This example is an encouragement to us to live that way. Second thing to notice here is that Paul is commending these people not just to put them on a pedestal, but to hold them up as an example for us to emulate and calling us in verse 16 to be subject to such as these. And then in verse 18, he tells us to give recognition to such people. 
So here my question to you is this. Who in your life is this kind of example? Who models this Christian life full of love and faithfulness to you? Who refreshes your soul and spirit and encourages you towards your Savior in a regular way? Who leads and examples serving others and building them up? I know that you have names and faces coming to mind. I've had so many while I've been studying this passage, but I want to recognize one person in particular. I'll probably cry. Uh, That person's Nathan Lee. I've known Nathan since January of 2009. Aside from my immediate family, Nathan is the person that is in my life for the longest. For a couple years as a new believer, I was under his leadership and crew and watched him serve others with all his heart and energy. I watched him care for and counsel others. I watched him share the gospel and pray with friends and classmates and strangers. I watched him sing and shout and jump with his whole body and heart. And I watched him love the church as the dearest place on earth and encourage others to do so as well. Then our lives and our roles changed and Nathan found himself under my leadership in one of the church's fellowship groups. I wasn't entirely sure how that was going to go, but I quickly watched as Nathan followed and listened and contributed and was an example to everyone in the group. I benefited from his encouragement and his faithfulness, from his commitment and his friendship. The refreshment that he brought to my spirit during that time was immeasurable. Then we went our separate ways, though we kept in touch and saw each other now and then. But then just over three years ago, we moved down to Delaware, and there was Nathan Lee. I watched and learned how he had been doing all those things I'd watched and benefited from doing for so many years for all of you here at Redeemer. I know that you all love him. And like we didn't miss a beat, we've slid back into this wonderful friendship where care and encouragement and refreshment and joy and leading and following all work together in a truly beautiful, loving way. Nathan, all I can say is thank you. I thank the Lord for you and for your example to me. Thank you for helping me to know and love Jesus more and for challenging me to follow him faithfully with all my life and conduct. Thank you for living out your faith with love in all that you do through partnership and faithfulness and service. I love you, dude. Church, let us be subject to such as these. Let us give recognition to such people. I'd encourage you to continue to think about who that person is or people are in your life and recognize them for it. Shoot them a text, give them a call, write them a letter. Recognizing God's faithfulness and activity in people's lives has a tremendous impact. And it's just one small way that we can do everything that we do in love. Why? because we've been united with Christ and everything we do must be done in love.
Now to wrap this up, this whole series and this sermon, notice that Paul doesn't end with recognizing people, but with what? You guessed it, the love of Christ. We saw at the very beginning of the letter and throughout it that the centrality of Jesus is a major thing. And the gospel of Jesus and the power of the cross must be of first importance for us. And so it should be no surprise to us that Paul is keeping Jesus central in his final words. Each of the final three verses refers to Christ in one way or another. Verse 22 makes it very clear that our attitude and relationship with the Lord is paramount. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. This might seem harsh, but if you're not going to live out your faith in Christ with love, Paul has made it abundantly clear throughout this whole letter that that shows that you don't actually belong to Jesus. It's a warning, it's a gut check. The question to ask is, does my life show that I belong to Jesus? Verse 23 says simply, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, which it is and always will be. This is a wonderful reminder that all that we have in Christ is by and through his grace. Verse 24, a wonderful close, says my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. This is an awesome thing when you consider all of the content of this letter Paul has needed to be pretty blunt and corrective at times, and he's needed to give basic reminders that may feel unnecessary or repetitive, and yet he doesn't close with do better or else, or I've got more to talk to you about when I come. No. He closes by putting into practice an example of everything that he's been calling us towards throughout the whole letter, that the love of Christ is powerful that it changes us and that it must overflow in our lives and in our conduct, that this love has at its aim and priority the building up of the church and others. So he leaves them with this final comment, one final stirring towards love and doing all things in love to the glory of God. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. What a close. What a letter. What an overwhelming reminder of Jesus' love for us and his commitment to us all as his church. Friends, let us commit to striving after the goals that God has set for us in 1 Corinthians together. The love of Christ and the power of the cross have saved us and changed us, and he has united us to one another in himself through his great love. So through partnership, and faithfulness and service, let us do everything we do in the love of Christ. Amen. Let's pray.